Before we get started with today's podcast episode, I have a very important podcast update that I'd like you all to hear about. As thus far in the podcast, I have been trying to do twice weekly episodes, Monday episodes covering comic book pull lists for comics coming out that week, and Friday episodes covering comic book pick lists, which covered what I read from that pull list from that week. Um, It's kind of become a lot because of my, I do have my own day job that I still have to do. Um, So I've kind of been leaning towards possibly changing the format of the podcast. And this is the episode where we're officially trying that out now. We're going to be a Monday podcast from here on out. And any second episodes that may come out during the week are going to be special edition podcast episodes, such as the Clea episode that I've been working on once we get uh, some kind of trailer for anything really for Multiverse of Madness. Um, And there will be a lot of other special edition podcasts that listeners will be able to vote on across various social media once I get that up and running a little bit better Um, and once I get some more people showing up on the various support sites where they can uh, vote for what things I'll be doing. So just a heads up, there's going to be once weekly podcasts um, for the main part of them from here on out for the foreseeable future unless uh, you guys really want me to go back to doing two. Let me know. uh, Give me some feedback about how you think of the format change. Um, And without further ado, let's get this bitch going. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. This is episode 43, which gosh, I don't know, somewhere near 100 for how many full episodes I've done. But today is Monday, the 6th of December, and we have a lot to talk about today, including Hawkeye Episode 3, so make sure you stick around for that. But we will start things off as usual with the news, which this week is a lot of MCU rumors and news, among a couple of other things. And then we have the comic book picks, things that came out on the 30th of November or the 1st of December, depending on if it was DC or or anything else. Uh, There's some really, really awesome stuff that I want to talk about, including mainly Historia and Animal Castle. Those are my top two picks for sure for the week. And then we have the pull list, things coming out tomorrow, the 7th of December and Wednesday, the 8th of December. There is a good number of number ones and a good number of really exciting issues that I personally have been looking forward to for a good while. So make sure you listen to all of that goodness before we get to Hawkeye episode three, which was titled Echoes. We go over all of the episode, all of the references and Easter eggs and any kind of connections to the comics, any kind of theories and things that can get sparked from those comic connections, um, just based on how they do things in the MCU. We are covering it all in this episode. And finally, I'm going to wrap it up with a admittedly brief discussion of the second completed arc of the Young Justice Season 4. That was the Cheshire, Lady Shiva, and Orphan arc. At least that's what I personally am going to be calling it. A very good series of episodes. I think it was four episodes in this arc, and they have started up next with the Zaytana arc, so we will talk about this arc <laughs> when we get there. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't have too much to say about it, but I it needs to be mentioned. 
Before we get into all of that goodness, though, uh, you can find me online. My Instagram is Anna with the Comics. My Twitter is Savage She Geek. My website is www.sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. You have to have the Weebly in there because I do not pay for it. Um, on my website, you can find my previous comic book writing, which has been more or less replaced with the podcast, anything that I would have written before I now discuss in the podcast, anything I would have put in the podcast in the past is there in written format. So you can check all of that out. You can also check out the reading orders that I have up there for some of my favorite female characters, a few of which are going to become very important in the uh, various Marvel universes soon, um, including Madeline Pryor, Ileana Rasputin, and then of course Clea is bound to be in the MCU in Multiverse of Madness. And I do plan on having uh, episodes, special edition episodes about all three of those characters. Actually, I already did the Madeline one. That was the Inferno one. So if you'd like to learn about Madeline Pryor via podcast episode, check out my Inferno special because I do have her character history more or less downloaded on there. Other things you can find on my site uh, for the hearing impaired or for anybody who is fond of reading and not so much of listening to my voice, I do have my podcast notes available on my website. That is what the notes that I go off of that I create through the week to make sure I mention everything that I would like to mention on the podcast. And finally, you can find links to everywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which does include YouTube. Uh, my YouTube is Sensational She Geek, and on there I do post action, few re- action figure review videos and unboxings. Some of the more recent, I've gotten a lot more into it back again after kind of not being on there for a while. So the most recent ones that you can find, um, you have the 2020 HasLab Sentinel, the Marvel Legends Tigra, the Shadow Meow Schools from Fortnite, and then I also did a tour of our toy collection under Black light and most recently put up a captain carter figure review uh, as well from the what if animated show and i recorded a moffex psylocke figure review today uh, in comparison to the marvel legends psylocke's plural uh, from hasbro it's quite a comparison uh, which i am currently have on my phone right now uploading to youtube Um, So hopefully that will be uploaded by the time that you are listening to this episode. The podcast does have a podcast Patreon if you would like to support it for donations. It's on there under Sensational She Geek. And anything that gets gets put through to the Patreon goes to me being able to spend more time and put in more effort for the podcast. And in the future, I hope to have a big enough of a following that I can uh, pay to add in sound effects and do a better job of editing and things like that, um, which I can't really do right now because I have bills to pay and a day job to still fulfill. Um, In the future, hopefully not. (laughs) You can also find my uh, Ko-fi, Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal all linked on my link tree, which will appear linked at the end of each episode's description wherever you are watching. I still would like to order my my stickers for the podcast. Um, I have picked out the design. It's just a matter of 
um, finding 60 bucks laying around to get them all printed off the way that I would like them to be. So, um, they're in, they're coming. Um, if you would like me to send you one or a few when I do get them, uh, go ahead and message me wherever you are able to, um, and send me your info and I will put you on the list. And at some point, hopefully by the end of the year, we will have those stickers available. Finally, I did make a Redbubble sticker. Um, it can really be whatever you want it to be because it's Redbubble, but it says a woman's place is in the comic shop. It's really fun. Um, you can find it on Redbubble under She Geek Shop if you're interested at all. Without further ado, let's get going with the news. For the news this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about Lost in Space Season 3 on Netflix, the Spider-Verse 2 trailer, a number of Spider-Man theories and news for No Way Home, and then uh, a number of other MCU rumors, and the wrap-up of the World War She-Hulk event, as they've been calling it, in Avengers 50, which is really just the very bare minimum information we need to get into the the She-Hulk series that's going to be coming in January. So Lost in Space Season 3 is up on Netflix. It went live on December 1st with, I believe, eight episodes, which I admit I did binge in about a day or so. And I have to say that I don't think they're planning on making a fourth season. The way that it ended, it seems very solid uh, on a good note. I also really enjoyed the way that they continue in this season to make references to the older versions of Lost in Space without it being quite as out there. Like, instead of time travel, which we had in the 90s movie version, there is, in this, somebody who is in cryosleep for 20 years, which for him is the kind of the same thing as time travel. It also fills in a lot of answers about characters everybody gets their moment and all in all it generally ends on a really good note so if you enjoyed the first two seasons of lost in space or enjoyed any of the original material definitely recommend checking this one out because they did everybody really great justice um and i think it was a pretty satisfying way to end if it did kind of force it just a touch with having to be cheesy to make it work uh, that's okay we can ignore the 10 minutes of like overblown cheesiness because the rest of it was really fantastic and i love the way that it ended this week also Harold, well, i guess the weekend heralded the spider-verse 2 trailer the very first teaser that we're getting for the spider-man across the spider-verse sequel which we know now is going to be called spider-man across the Spider-Verse Part 1. Did I say the... F it was Into the Spider-Verse. This one is Across the Spider-Verse. But they're putting Part 1 there, which is very interesting because it obviously um, shows that there will be a Part 2 after the fact. And this is going to be coming out in October 2020, so just under a year from now. Of course, things have been pushed back so much. It's probably going to be a year plus if I was to be realistic about it. So this was a really fun teaser. There's a lot of comics people who are involved with it who are very, very excited, as am I. The little teaser picks up with Miles, of course, at home. He is picked up, basically, by Gwen, who takes him out across the Web of Destiny. Now, the Web of Destiny, if you are unfamiliar, I actually just copy and pasted this from Wikipedia, I'm not gonna lie, because I didn't feel like typing it out myself, and honestly, they have much better words to describe what it is than I do off the top of my head, so... 
it is the web of life and destiny. It's a three-dimensional construct in five-dimensional space, which acts as a model of the entire multiverse and enables travel between realities. Its nexus lies in Earth 001, where it is maintained by the Master Weaver and various totemic spider deities. Madame Webb and the various spider incarnations, Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, and Spider-Girl, and others across the multiverse ultimately derive their spider powers from the web of life and are considered totemic entities of spiders. This is something that becomes very relevant. I'm, I'm not quoting Wikipedia anymore. This is something that becomes very relevant with the Spider-Verse and Spider-Geddon events that have both happened at Marvel Comics fairly recently. Spider-Verse was a incredible uh, kickoff of an event uh, that brings in characters of the Inheritors, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but they ultimately feed off of the spider totems, which if you're still not really sure what a spider totem is, well, let me find one about what a spider totem is not. Well, that would be easier. Black Widow, not a spider totem. She does not have superpowers. She does not have spider powers. She's just called Black Widow because that's what the Russian fighters were called, Black Widows. Gwen Stacy, as in Spider Gwen, she is a spider totem. In her reality, she was bit by the spider and got the spider powers. Peter Parker of 616 is a spider totem. Miles Morales is a spider totem. Which, fun fact, did you know Miles Morales actually came from the Ultimate Comics universe, which kind of collided with the, with the 616 when Hickman did um, Battle Worlds, and now he's, he's just in the 616. Nobody ever talks about that. But he's literally from a different universe. Like, it's crazy. Um, but anyway... Um, so you understand now, I think, what spider totems are. Spider totems are heroes who actually represent spiders being as beings, not just are named after them, okay? Another thing that we see in this, uh, this little clip is that they are uh, Gwen and Pete. <laughs> Gwen and Pete. Gwen and Miles, sorry. They are clearly a lot older. I think it's a bit more obvious... Uh, well, Miles is everything. He looks a lot older, but Gwen, I think it's a bit obvious in her hairstyling um, and the fact that she does seem to be a bit taller, physically larger. So um, they're definitely older. So that's interesting. It's been some time since the last movie. Um, and we see as she takes them off in through the Web of Destiny, they go to all these different worlds with different visual designs. And we have Spider-Man 2099. Miguel O'Hara, voiced by Oscar Isaac, is attacking Miles. Um, Spider-Man 2099 is, of course, the Spider-Man of 2099. <laughs> Not a lot more to explain to it there. He was created by uh, writer Peter David and artist Rick Leonardi in 1992 for their 2099 comic book event that kind of happened in that year at Marvel. Uh, and he did appear for the first time in his own number one of Spider-Man 2099. Number one from 1992. We actually have that issue. <laughs> Just gonna rub, rub that off for a second. I don't know what I was trying to say there. Um, but anyway, uh, why is he attacking Miles? Good question. Why does Gwen Stacy very obviously have a secret that she's hiding? Also good question. But a better question is, are we going to see the Inheritors? I would have to say, probably most definitely. Um, 
I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to say that Gwen is already running from them. So let's talk about the inheritors. Again, I explained them very briefly um, at earlier on in this little clip. Um, they basically are this evil family who goes across the multiverse feeding off of spider totems. They take their life force, leave them dead. Not for dead, they straight up killed them. <laughs> End of story. <laughs> so the inheritors, I did put in a a, a bit more of a um, the from the villains wiki page for Marvel. Uh, they have again, they have better words than I do to describe these things. Uh, a little bit more in depth than just feeding off spider totems. It says the inheritors are villains in the Spider-Man series, serving as the main villains of Spider-Verse and Spider-Geddon. The inheritors first appeared in the Superior Spider-Man number thirty-three, where Morlin, who is their leader of their family, is reunited with his siblings and the plans of bringing the Great Hunt being and plans of bringing the Great Hunt hunt in motion. His family fully takes center stage alongside him throughout the series, and they went to go after the spider totems, killing any of them for the Great Hunt, as overseen by their father, Solus. Well, I guess he's the leader of the family, but Moreland's like the leader of the hunt. Um, but I think that We'll wait to talk more about the whole family dynamic for the <laughs> the inheritors um, once once we see a little bit more evidence that they will in fact be in this movie. Um, that's something that everybody was expecting in the first one, so I have no doubt that they're going to want to make it as big and possibly secretive going into the movie as they can so that it's a big surprise. Everybody gets what they wanted, the evil villains of the actual Spider-Verse comic series. Um, I, I can't really see this going any other way. There's no reason for Miguel O'Hara to actually, um, be fighting Miles unless he was sent by them or is trying to stop him from being caught by them. Something complicated like that, no doubt. Now I do have two points of MCU rumors. The first is that there is supposedly going to be a Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness trailer coming out this month. For some reason, people all over Twitter are insisting that that will be happening. I honestly don't see a reason for that to happen. <laughs> I believe that movie's coming out in May. Um, they usually wait till about three or four months out to put out trailers for things, and we are more like five trying to do math in my head. Yeah. So I, I feel like it's going to be 2022 before we see a trailer for that. But I mean, keep your ears open, I guess, because it could actually, it could happen. The other bit of theorizing that I have here is a personal theory that we have in our house. Um, after thinking about the interview that Amy Pascal did with, I believe it was Fandango, talking about how they were so happy to have all of these characters come back and everybody was so excited to return from previous Spider-Man movies um, and other Marvel Sony movies. Um, I have to... I, we find ourselves thinking here that... And, and she made a good point about how um, they were trying you know, so hard. There's certain things that they definitely don't want getting out. If the three Peters showing up in that movie is there, you know, one big surprise in store, they have completely failed on that front. And I think she knows that. And that makes me think those three characters or those two extra characters appearing alongside the Peter Parker we know, Tom, uh, Tom, Hardy, Tom Holland, that's actually not going to be a very big surprise now. 
it is they're not holding that one close to the chest at all that has not been news since uh, probably six months plus now it's been very clear that (laughs) those two actors are in this movie so what if there's something more that's going to get brought into it that people hasn't leaked that nobody's gotten a whiff of something like you know we know the sony verse is going to collide with this right what if venom shows up because he's going to be in that world now just a thought just a thought. Now uh, we'll go on to the one bit of facts that we have is that it is as of, I think, yesterday, Kevin Feige himself, so the man completely in charge of this crap, has come out to officially announce that Charlie Cox will be playing Matt Murdock in the MCU starting in No Way Home. That's pretty darn cool. Um, Again, going back to uh, what I just said about them having another secret up their sleeves, I think they're releasing on purpose all of this stuff that's been rumored because they have one last thing or one major thing that nobody has mentioned. So they're giving us all of these freebies, confirming all of our theories, all in the hopes that that will keep us all satiated and we won't figure out that there's something else there. But the the, the, the important thing to take away from this is uh, Charlie Cox in the MCU and dreams are coming true. And finally, as far as news goes, I was going to cover this in the comic book picks, but it was not a good issue at all in general. Uh, But I did read, uh, flip through, Avengers 50 by Jason Aaron. Was not impressed, very confused at best, really. Uh, But for the Jen Walters wrap-up of the horrendous World War She-Hulk event that did not deserve to be called World War She-Hulk in any sense of the phrase. Um, Basically what they're saying, because of course the next time we're going to be seeing her in any kind of major way, it's going to be her own series happening in January. So how they're transitioning her from Beast Mode Hulk uh, to back to being basically her sensational version in her own series coming up in January, like I said. Um, What they're saying here is that she absorbs all this gamma energy from a bomb that was headed to Atlantis, completely overloads herself with gamma energy so much, and then goes into Avengers Mountain, which is, of course, a former Sentinel... Sentinel? (laughs) Celestial. It's a former Celestial corpse, basically. Um, And she releases all that gamma energy and comes out not only naked, but back in her sensational form. And everybody comes up uh, and hugs her while she's naked um i mean it wasn't it wasn't really well written i'm not gonna lie it kind of sucked but it did the job she's back to the point that she needs to be to prep for her own series so there you go that's how that worked out i read it so you don't have to now we're gonna move on and talk about comic book picks these are things that came out for dc comics on november 30th and everything else on december 1st My top two picks of the week were the Historia, the Amazon premiere issue, as well as Animal Castle premiere issue. Other things that I'm going to talk about in varying degrees uh, are Marauders, Wonder Girl, 
The Me You Love in the Dark's finale, Human Target, New Mutants, Dirtbag Rapture, the Gotham's Villains Anniversary Special for hashtag Poison Ivy Watch, Captain Marvel, Trial of Magneto, and the final issue of Daredevil. Starting off with Historia, um, it's a little bit difficult to put into words how this comic makes me feel. <laughs> Um, I suppose it feels a little bit like a Bible that has been written from a woman's perspective about women. It feels grand and legitimizing and empowering and heart-wrenching. Um, and as a person, <laughs> I've mentioned this a few times before, but one of the reasons that I love the concept of beings like the Amazons and She-Hulk um, and creatures like that who are these very bulky feminine beings is because I am from strong Eastern European stock and, um, you know, anybody in my family, if we were to try on hats that are one size fit all, chances are they do not fit us. <laughs> we are what you might call properly big boned. I have a picture. I lost it. It was on an old phone somewhere, but I once went to a con and took a picture with Candace Patton, uh, who is a stunning woman um, and very sweet. I am lumbering over her like a giant. Every part of me is bigger than every part of her. I am very large and she is very petite. <laughs> um, so that is... I think you understand maybe why I would connect with beings such as She-Hulk or the Amazons. Um, and so reading a lot of this, I feel a lot of that connection. Um, and especially when they start connecting things to real world injustices and patterns and strife. Um, it is... It is very legitimizing. Um, and I struggled so much with what to say about this. I would like to read the first few pages to you, if that's okay. And then I will summarize the rest of the events of the comic. But um, you deserve to have, if you have not read this, you, you as a reader, as a human being, deserve to have this comic in your life. Um, and I would like to just go over the beginning because it is so, oh, it's so perfect. And I wish you could see the art along with it by this goddamn comic. Um, it starts off with the rumors versus the truth. So it starts off with someone speaking, the Amazons, they whisper, warrior women. And the response is, as though such a thing were foreign to our sex. Then they say, some say they cut off their own breasts to aid the flight of their arrows. Some are liars, fabulists. The children of Ares, the daughters of war. No, the Amazons have no fathers. Surely this we know, the Amazons sequester themselves from the world of men, save for Diana, a gift from the warriors of Themyscira, our Wonder Woman. No, not that either, none of it. History, young one, is written by the victors. In the bitter battle between the Amazons and the gods of men, the Amazons lost. There is no objective version, neither this one nor that. But this, this is our story. The Amazon's utopia. And it begins with the goddesses. 
And you have this amazing spread of the six goddesses here. Uh, from left to right, Hestia, Artemis, Demeter, Hecate, Aphrodite, and Athena. Now, these are all goddesses of Greek lore. Um, you have Hestia, she's the goddess of the hearth and altar flame. Artemis, the huntress. Demeter, the goddess of growth, grain, the cycles of life and death. Hecate, the goddess of the crossroads, witchcraft, and death. Aphrodite, of love, beauty, pleasure, passion, and appetites. And then Athena, of course, uh, the weaver, cunning, sharp goddess of the city, made of edges, burst from Zeus's mind himself. Um, and you have the art here, um, which goes amazingly well with the characters whose designs themselves are stupendous. Um, for Hestia, she is the goddess of the hearth. It says, women she sees beyond your walls. And at the base of her panel of art, you have uh, some barnyard animals that you may have found back in the day in ancient Greece. Um, and then for Artemis, it says, Artemis knows you for the wild creature you truly are. And at the base, she stands on a wild boar bigger than she is. She is a nymph-like creature here. Um, almost fairy-like uh, but wild, and at the base of her panel, it has a deer that's been shot up with arrows that is half human and half deer. For Demeter, it says, Mothers, literal and figurative, Demeter watches you as you tend your gardens. She sees you weep for all that will not grow. Now, Demeter is the mother of Persephone, who you might remember is the goddess who is fated to spend half her life on Earth and half in Hell with Hades. Um, and at the base of Demeter's picture, you see she's wrapped with all these lovely flowers and animals and things. But then you see Persephone um, walking, presumably towards hell, away from her mother. Um, and it's it's really gorgeous. Uh, for Hecate, she is a, a three-bodied being uh, covered in spikes. And she it says, Hecate knows your power and your fear. Aphrodite is a luscious... Um, multicolored um, being with galaxies in her hair. Really, really stunning creation, honestly. Um, and it says, Aphrodite feels you ache with hunger. And then for Athena, it says, uh, she is made of edges as such Athena knows your mind. And then we get to Hera, goddess of women. It says, Hera sees with a thousand eyes. She is your queen bitch, your sin eater. Hera bears the burden of foresight. A prophetess, Hera knows your pride and your rage before you do. Every bruise to your dignity burns like fire. She is branded with it. And she loves you beyond reckoning, for you all belong to her. Then it goes into the abuses of men um, and explaining why Hera was driven to uh, make the requests that she does. Um, I'll, I'll read this one too. It says, The subjugations and abuses of not men by men are too numerous to catalog in a library, let alone a book. It's just his nature, they say. We say nature may be brutal, but it is not sinister. But if we were... But if it were in his nature to dominate his sisters, t'would be an instinct garrisoned by civility. For the institutions of men care not for the well of women. You don't have to be the queen of gods to recognize injustice. 
Can you imagine what it would feel like to bear witness across a millennia, to see it all at once with a thousand thousand eyes? Um, there is some pottery that is decorated with these abuses, and the list, the titles of the pieces of pottery include degradation, chatellery, exclusion, entitlement, occlusion, suppression, humiliation, subjugation, assault, and murder. I think we all understand what this is going over. And so Hera has seen enough. Um... So then they go and they, the, the god, seven goddesses, including Hera, go to Zeus. When it comes down to it, Zeus and his god brothers, sons, and bastards all laughed at the women's issues that were brought before them by these goddesses, and they are just sent away. Later, they meet again in secret to start their own world of women, but Hera does not include herself among them. She tells them it is doomed to fail, and for her, it is really complex because Zeus isn't just her god and brother. He is her husband and father to her children. If it was me, honestly, fuck that. He's an asshole. So the six goddesses remaining, they create the first Amazons. They create them from the Well of the Lost, which is basically, as, as I'm taking it, the Well of Souls. It says, The souls of all women whose lives were taken in violence are consigned here, eternally guarded, loved and revered as they should have been in life. So the goddesses meet there and create their first Amazons. And as I'm going down the page, we get the first Amazon is from, let's see, I believe it was from Hestia. No, no, that was Demeter. I'm sorry. It was Demeter who had the first Amazon. Her name was Penthesilia. And then she was joined from, with Io from Hestia, Menalip from Hecate, Helen from Athena, Pythia from Aphrodite, and Antiope from Artemis. Each of them have their own designs, body types, skin colors, ages, absolutely everything about them is unique to them. Um, and at last we get the spread of 30, 30 completely unique characters that these writers have created to fill in the ranks of the first Amazons. 30, each with their own unique individual look, name, abilities, strengths, and weaknesses, costume designs. It is remarkable, to say the absolute least. Um, and then that goes on to, you know, Athena goes and meets with Hera, asks her, you know, why you didn't join us. And then we go to what will be the story from here on out, I believe which is Hippolyta's story and how she becomes connected to them. Hippolyta was just a, uh, a widow in a Grecian city. And when a noble lady gives birth to yet another daughter, when they were hoping for a son as an heir, she is commanded to take the baby and get rid of it. So what that means basically is take it off to a river, put it off in a basket, and if the gods see fit that the child will live, it will live. If the gods do not see him fit, she, him or her fit, she will die. So she leaves the baby, is completely crushed and heartbroken by it, um, and ends up running, just running away. She runs for a countless amount of time until she is captured by male soldiers who wish to have their way with her, of course, unsurprisingly. Um, and they are slaughtered by Amazons themselves, by true Amazons. So 
that is how Hippolyta first meets the Amazons of Themyscira. But interestingly enough, it is Queen Hera who takes that baby from the river and who takes its soul and keeps it with her for a while, saying that she needs to use that as her eyes um, to watch over what is going on. So uh, we get a really, really bonkers spread of Hippolyta at the end of this first issue. Um, if I haven't convinced you to read this already, the last thing I have to do that is that at the end of this, the very end, after the story is over, they go through character descriptions for every single one of the 30 Amazons they created. Every single one! They have names, they have individual things about them that are noted, they have leaders of each sect, they have defining traits that are different for each one of them. This is bonkers! If you don't understand how impressive this is, this is probably the wrong podcast for you. <laughs> um, this shit was wild good. Um, and I should probably move on now, but I just, I, I cannot, cannot stress enough how badly I need you to read Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazons. This shit has to do well so that we keep getting awesome shit like this in the future from DC Black Label. Animal Castle was another really good one this week, one of my top picks. It is a retelling of George Orwell's classic story, Animal Farm, which itself is an allegory on the rise of the Bolsheviks in Russia. Uh, I did see somebody online comparing this to that as if that's the rise of the Bolsheviks, and this is an allegory of the French Revolution, which I can, I can definitely see as being really accurate already based on the events that we've seen. It takes place in a realm where the humans have abandoned this farm that they once created and the animals that remained there made a republic. Uh, but things have gone very poorly for those who are not on the top as we see a hen who tried to keep an egg, one of her own eggs for herself is executed by way of dog mauling because the dogs are the like militia basically. A cat called Miss B is raising her kittens alone after her male, as they called him, had died. So she works in his place as well as raising them. During the day, the nanny goose called Daisy watches after the kittens. Daisy is tired of seeing the injustices every day uh, and starts to make small rebellions like not hailing their glorious president, Silvio. And then when rations are stored, Daisy starts a real rebellion uh, and it gets real bloody real fast. Miss B is able to save herself and her kittens, but when she comes out to check what's going on, the barnyard is a slaughterhouse and everything is just, all of her friends are all dead on the ground and Daisy's ripped up body is pinned to the gates. This sounds horrible and dark. It is. It's a fun mix of really, really dark concepts with really playful concepts like animals, <laughs> hens and chickens and cats and dogs who are the police and a lot of blood and guts and murder. <laughs> it's awesome. This is right up my alley. I'm going to read the crap out of the series. Marauders is the good Gary Duggan, Jerry Duggan work coming out right now. I do not recommend his X-Men, uh, but I will keep reading Marauders for its last two issues. Uh, this is the second to last issue, um, which was really, really good. Again, how is it so different than his other writing? I don't know. Uh, we had, it starts off with Iceman basically wondering what the extent of his powers are now that he has gone as far as to help create life on Mars which is the new planet known as Arako. Um, 
in this issue, Harry Leland is resurrected, which they had to go through extreme lengths to get him not to freak out about that. Uh, and he is brought to Krakoa by Emma and Shaw, who are in their old school Hellfire outfits. Fing Fing Foom, meanwhile, uh, shows up uh, to the Marauders' ship as they fly through the air. He's been partying after apparently winning some kind of interstellar battle tournament, and he wants their booze. <laughs> Obviously, they're not going to give him their booze. So, Body, aka Iceman, uh, comes out and fights him, turns into a giant, uh, and basically tells him well, actually, literally tells him, fuck around and find out. And so then he goes and takes off. Fing Fang Foom, that is. And finally, uh, Shaw himself reveals to his son and Harry Leland that his son, Shinobi, is actually Harry's bastard son. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, Leland becomes the Krakoan UN ambassador. I read somewhere that he's a lawyer, so that is actually a perfect decision as long as he doesn't stab them in the back. Which he, I don't think he would because it's in their interest that Krakoa keeps going well. So there we go. As for Wonder Girl this week, issue five, this was written by Joelle Jones, but the art for this issue was entirely handled by Adriana Mello. I really, really love her art style. Alongside Elena Casagrande, she is the closest artist to Jones's style um, itself, so it works out really, really perfectly. Um, I first encountered Mello's art on the Female Fury series written by Cecil Castellucci, so if you see that at any point in time, I definitely recommend it. Great art, fantastic writing. Um, but what happens in this issue of Wonder Girl is, uh, Yara kind of triggers Hera into revealing her true nature of impatience and, you know, overlording over her people. So Yara, of course, turns down the elixir of the gods, battling her way out of Olympus with her Pegasus friend, Jerry. But Hephaestus strides Jerry down, killing him and destroying Yara's sword. Meanwhile, Potyra, the uh, Amazon, Brazilian Amazon, I guess, uh, who is, ends up being Yara's friend in the future, reveals her tribe to Cassie. They live in the city called Akahim, and they their current name of their people is called the Escasida. Uh, that is, in case you're looking to spell it, E-S-Q-U-E-C-I-D-A. I think I did a pretty good idea job on the pronunciation this time, if I don't say myself. The Me You Love in the Dark also had its fifth issue, which was its final issue. Um, and boy, was it. Oh, it was something. <laughs> uh, if you recall, the last issue ended with the creature killing the dude. I kind of assumed he just cut his throat or something simple like that. No, I was wrong. He totally disemboweled him. <laughs> and of course, Ro, who I realize her full name is Rowena in this issue. Don't know if we, if I just missed that before or what. Uh, she is completely horrified, as I think we all would be. Um, the creature apologizes very, very calmly and kind of demands that she forgive him. When she does not it changes its face to appear how she drew it for the first time when she was painting the creature, which just makes it worse. And then in an attempt to calm her, the creature mushes the editor's body back together and tries to make him talk like a puppet. Uh, absolutely terrifying, completely horrifying nightmare material. So she's obviously screaming at this point, asks, what, are, what the hell are you, you know, and it responds by saying, she knows what it is. It's something that loves her and that she loves. Uh, so she tries to trick it into letting her leave the house, but it just gets angry, getting very 
army, lots of many arms, lifting her off the ground, uh, sees her terror, and then apologizes again as it sits her in front of her easel, just kind of plops her down, commanding her that she should paint in order to make herself feel better. So it leaves her alone, dragging the pile of body parts out behind it. <laughs> uh, when Ro is done, uh, the, the monster dude comes in to see she says that she now sees it for what it truly is and throws a candle and paint thinner on it. So the whole house ends up burning to the ground with Ro barely making it out. And then it ends with the very ominous <laughs> final lines of, or panels, I guess, of um, an old, one of her old paintings from that period of living in that house being found at an antique shop. <laughs> and it looks like this couple is probably going to buy it and hang it up in their house and go through the same bullshit adventure. <laughs> Human Target number two. This story is, of course, by Tom King, and it, had, it is very much a detective noir story with the narration going along as the story plays out. It's almost like a slice-of-life anime. Um, in this issue, we get Ice telling Christopher Chance that Lex was the one who got Overmaster to kill her back in the day, and the hero known as Fire reacted poorly to the news. Uh, at one point in the issue, she kisses Chance while he was having a coughing fit, which cools his lungs. And on the last page, we learn that Christopher Chance was actually the one to make all the calls and pull all the strings to get her to decide, well, basically trick her to decide into meeting with him that day. Um, so he, he's clearly a step ahead of where everybody thinks he is. It makes me wonder, um, I don't know, where is this going? I honestly, I'm kind of wondering where is, what, what is the big reveal going to be? Is there going to be a big reveal? A twist? I don't know. We'll just have to keep reading and find out. In Vita Ayala and Rod Reese's fantastic New Mutants issue, the young mutants save the older mutants team and they help each other basically figure out that Amal Farouk sent Wolfsbane to help him from the Shadow King, which is him as well. It ends up that they're all able to make it so that he is just Amal Farouk again, not the Shadow King. You might call it facing their shadow selves and coming out on top. Um, I will always love and appreciate how Vita Ayala has become a master of synergy between these characters, putting the pieces together to get the best result and most accurate result of what they want to have done based on everybody's abilities. It's a really, really cool device, and I love how they've been keeping up with that so much. Dirtbag Rapture number three of four uh, was a really fun issue. Uh, the pace is a little bit different than the, than the last issue, but that's okay. Um, the big reveal of this one, though, is that angels and demons have been breaking into Cat's head for the past who knows how long, and the regular ghosts who have just been living in her little internal hotel in her head have been casually just burying them in the yard, trying to ignore that anything is going wrong. So they probably should have mentioned that before now, just thinking. <laughs> Uh, for the Gotham's Villains Anniversary Special, aka hashtag Poison Ivy Watch, Ivy starred in a story written by G. Willow Wilson with art by Emma Rios, colored by Jordi Belair, and goddamn, it was fantastic looking. Uh, in the story, Ivy takes a basically death plant into a Gotham office building and ends up getting attached to one of the uh, human female victims. She gets her out of the building before it all blows and leaves her outside the city limits where she is healing. 
more importantly than any of that in the actual story is the fact that the story ends with the words Poison Ivy Story Blooms in 2022. I've talked a lot about where we could possibly be seeing her in the future. I read all the solicitations. She has not had a single mention through February, so I'm wondering... Is it March? <laughs> is it going to be the next time I go over solicitations for DC? I'm finally going to see that sign that Poison Ivy has literally anything going on in 2022. They seem to be claiming that she does. So now we just wait. Captain Marvel. Um, it, I, I got the Archer cover and I, I'm trying to ignore the fact that the idiot God guy at the comic shop. I had to describe what it looked like. He didn't know who Marvel was. He didn't know who Archer was. I, they wouldn't hire me. <laughs> they wouldn't. Whatever. Um, a decent issue. Uh, Carol gets out of the lockbox. They stuck her in the last issue by basically learning to project her powers out of herself, almost like a binary form duplicate, kind of. Uh, the being is her, but somehow also not her. Like it's her own self. It's its own self when it's outside of her body, I guess. Um, one of the villains who are attacking now is Marvel, but Carol is able to see that that isn't truly him. It's just a clone or some other form of trick. But when she is taken in by him, she just breaks out using her newfound binary secondary form, which is much to Vox Supreme's distaste. Uh, and I think we've got one or two more issues to wrap up this arc. Trial of Magneto is number four is just, it was fine, I guess. Um, really great art more than anything. Uh, but we see that the Wanda who is found alive, she was an old copy that was resurrected by the five. Um, and then we get old woman Wanda attacking like spirit Wanda or whatever in a place called the Eldrick Orchard. Uh, the monsters that are attacking Krakoa turn out to be manifestations of her guilt and anger, which old woman Wanda is, I guess, trying to beat out of her. <laughs> Everyone gets mad at her on Krakoa for the monsters attacking, and she finally connects with her other forms, Maiden Mother Crone, Future, Present, Past. Uh, the War Captains, Magic, Quanan, and Bishop all come out to help. Monsters are beaten, and it turns out they were formed of Eldric Orchard material. The three Wandas merge, leaving just the one true Wanda. Um, and old Wanda tells her before that that she lives for such a long time, uh, before she goes... She, then she ends up going to whatever uh ends with her saying that she knows who attacked her um there was some distracting reuse of art in some panels i will say that too uh, but for the most part pretty decent issue we'll have to see how this ends to see <laughs> if if it all makes sense in the end finally the final issue of daredevil came out this week where we have wilson fisk and typhoid mary get married also, Hell's Kitchen now has two Daredevils, Elektra and Mac, Matt hook up in a lake, and uh, that's the end of the series. Next up is going to be, for Chip Zartsky and Daredevil stuff, is going to be Devil's Reign, and we'll see Elektra in Woman Without Fear. Which leaves us with the weekly comic book pull list. Now, these are titles that are coming out. 
this Tuesday the 7th for DC Comics and for everything else on Wednesday the 8th. I'm going to go through uh, the number ones first and then go down the rest of the list pretty quickly. Uh, starting off with Tales of Mother F. Goose. It's a one-shot by Frank Thierry and Joe Eisma coming from Aftershock Comics. They are retold fairy tales with a a bit of a Tarantino twist to them. So it says, Little Miss Muffet is a hard-nosed cop with arachnophobia. The three blind mice are ocularly impaired assassins. Puss in Boots is a feline-faced scumbag. It's really fun retellings. I have no doubt they're going to be pretty awesome. Uh, So definitely check out Mother F. Goose. Daisy number one is coming from Dark Horse by Colin Lorimer, who is writing and drawing it with assistance on colors from Joanna LaFuente. It is the story about a desperate mother's five-year search for her missing son. Um, And it leads her to a place where she meets Daisy, an eight-and-a-half-foot-tall young girl who is still growing. Um, But clearly there's there's some stuff up there. It says her family may be descended from a race of cannibalistic giants spawned from the outcasts of heaven. There is an art germ cover on Cowboy Bebop number one, which is an original story set in the year 2171. It says the bounty hunter crew of the spaceship Bebop chase an ex-gang member who holds a vest, which gives the wearer unlimited luck. This is by Dan Waters and Lamar Mathurin, and it's coming from Titan Comics. We have a celebration of Latinx heroes at Marvel with Marvel's Voices Comunidades. Oh gosh, we'll go through writers. Let's see Terry Bloss, Carla Pacheco, Daniel Jose Older, Juan Ponche, Leonardo Romero, Edgar Delgado. And then we have art by Leonardo Romero, Adriana Mello, Alita Martinez, Vanessa R. Del Rey, Nico Leon, and Anid Balam. There's also covers by Mateus Manhini, Manhanini. No, sorry, Nabis Nitro, Nabis Nitro, Zitro, God, I can't read, George Perez, Natasha Bustos, Humberto Ramos, and Maria Wolf. Devil's Reign number one is following up to Chip Zartsky's now completed Daredevil run. It's going to be the war on uh, Hell's Kitchen, basically, between Kingpin and the rest of the heroes in the New York City area. So that is by Chip Zartsky with Marco Cicchetto on art. Giant Size Black Cat Infinity Score number one is a special edition coming that's following after Black Cat number 10. It is again by the same Black Cat team, Jed McKay and Carlos Villa, and is going to be wrapping up the whole Infinity Destinies and Infinity Score stuff that's been going on with her that honestly has been really boring. Crimson Rain number one. I am interested in this series because of Kira. Um, she was played by, of course, Amelia Clark in the solo movie. Haven't been keeping up with the War of the Bounty Hunters arc that is leading into this, um, but I am very interested in her character. Uh, what we could have had if they had stuck around with their plans of uh, showing her in the Crimson Dawn. Um, doing stuff for Maul, which would have been awesome, but we never got that. So we're getting it now in this comic. It's by Charles Soule, who is a legendary Marvel Star Wars writer, and art with Stephen Cummings. Uh, 
Dark Knights of Steel number two is coming out this week. It is issue two of 12 coming from DC, not Black Label, which I find to be a bit surprising. It's written by Tom Taylor, who is a master of these Elseworlds style stories with art by Yasmin Putri in these first couple of issues. It is a high fantasy DC universe retelling. So D&D, uh, any of that kind of stuff, King Arthur, this is your jam. Inferno number three is issue three of four for this wrap-up of Jonathan Hickman's X-Men Empire. Uh, it only has one line for its solicitation. It just says, Nimrod strikes. Krakoa's troubles don't attack one at a time. Jonathan Hickman reunites with his powers of ex-collaborator R.B. Silva for the penultimate chapter of his ex-swan song. Like I said, it's the wrap-up of his run, one more issue after this, by Hickman and R.B. Silva. Um, I am super stoked for anything Hickman does. Very disappointed we won't be getting more after uh, December's issue number four of Inferno. Oh gosh, or is it January's now? Who knows? Either way, um, this'll be one for the books, kids. Hellions number 18 comes from the longtime Hellions team Zeb Wells and Stephen Segovia with more art by Zay Carlos. We're going to have covers of this one by Philip Tan, Inuk Lee, David Nakayama, Sebastian Chang, Kale Nu, and Peach Momoko because, folks, this is the at last mighty return of Madeline Pryor, aka the Goblin Queen. Uh, I'm obsessed, if you haven't noticed that. Um, you can check out her reading order on my site uh, under reading orders, of course. I have every single appearance of hers listed out and commentated on, um, so you can literally just read her entire history as summarized by me in the matter of two hours or less if you really want to get, uh, get to know her character really, really fast. She's going to be popping up with some other stuff like New Mutants, so again, super excited to be seeing her in the comics again. Finally, um, I, I haven't decided yet if I'm actually going to be reading this one, but we have a new Batman creative team starting this week with issue 118. It's by Joshua Williamson with art by Jorge Molina, um, who is a pretty awesome artist. So, um, I, new creative team, didn't like the last one. We'll see if this ends up being uh, worth anything. We do seem to be having more new villains brought in, which was a big a legitimate critique of the last creative team's Batman run. Um, so we'll kind of see if his stick a little bit better. Which leads us to Hawkeye episode three. This third episode on Disney Plus premiered on Wednesday, the 1st of December. And this was titled Echoes, which is a play on Maya Lopez's superhero name, Echo, um, and the fact that she herself is a deaf mute. Um, and Clint has, we'll get there when we get there. So that's just the title of the episode. Uh, we kick things off this week with Maya's backstory going as far back as 2007 when she had to start going to public school. She was maybe six. Um, even though she was a deaf mute, and was raised by her dad, Willie, as far as we know, just her dad. They make a point of making it clear that though she struggles along, uh, struggles with following along in class, she is definitely smarter than the other kids and doesn't need her hand held in order to still learn. Her dad, Willie, has the circle from her jacket tattooed on him, or rather her jacket has it from his tattoo. Uh, and we see them having a conversation 
when she's a child, her signing to him and him signing and speaking about how she was going to be going to the school for the death. They saved up the money for that, but he doesn't have the money for it anymore. Um, and you definitely can gather very easily that it was related to gang stuff, why he does not have that money for her to do that anymore. So he tries to tell her that the public school will be better for her in the end. Who knows if it was? Uh, we'll never know because he spent that money on who knows what. He also tells her that she has to learn to jump between two worlds. What he probably means is hearing and non-hearing. Um, and she will learn by watching and observing how to do all that. Then directly after he says that, they go into a scene where she sits as a child still in a karate class and watches uh, two kids fight. And they happen to be a black kid and a white kid, a very dark skinned black kid and a pale ass white kid. It was interesting because she's Native American. Um, she is one of, you know, a person of color who is not really accepted as a part of either of those worlds. Um, so she kind of has to constantly walk the line between where do I fit in? This was something that my Filipino husband pointed out to me. Um, and after thinking about that, I, I do think he's right. I like to think that they set up those shots like that on purpose to make that point. At a match of her uh, karate martial arts stuff, when she's still a kid, Willie tells Maya that it's more about speed than size, which I think is a little bit important, not only for her, but in foreshadowing, and that someone called Uncle will take her home. Then we see a large black suited figure walking up behind him who pinches Maya's cheeks, little pale hands pinches Maya's cheeks so she smiles. And we hear very clearly D Vincent D'Onofrio laughing, which is not me making a joke about him laughing off in the distance. It's really him. It's his laugh. It's Kingpin. At this point, Wilson Fisk, maybe, but this is Vincent D'Onofrio. I'm not making a joke. It's really him. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to note, the term uncle is used a few times in the show. It is a term a lot of indigenous people use when referring to an older male figure in their life who they are close to and who is trusted to them. In this case, at this point in the show, it would almost seem timing wise that Willie is using uncle to refer to Wilson Fisk himself, which is very interesting. Uh, Willie also in the same scene calls Maya his little dragon. Um, which is a name once used to describe infamous martial artist Bruce Lee. So that's a cool little callback Easter egg type thing. And it is also, I forgot to mention this in the last episode. Um, I don't think I noticed it yet actually, but it's definitely worth noting that someone on Twitter posted recently about Wilson Fisk's house in the Netflix Daredevil series, which we see clearly a number of times, comparing it to the Hawkeye series that house is the same location as episode one's underground illegal auction that the tracksuits robbed. That is Fisk's house. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not an if it's a when, <laughs> when, when, when are we going to actually get it confirmed? So not only is Maya a deaf mute, she has but one leg. Um, the other being, I guess, amputated perhaps around the knee, it looks like. 
and it's filled in by a sleek robot looking shin and foot. She gets a killer fight montage, which makes it very clear to us that she is a damn good fighter all on her own. It's also possible that the scene of her fighting another boxer, specifically a male boxer, and beating him is a reference from her first appearance in Daredevil number nine, where we meet her while she wins a boxing match against a male fighter in a public boxing match. Back in the show, uh, we see the night that her father dies, Willie, with Maya arriving by bike and witnessing the alleged Ronin slaughtering her dad and his crew in their garage. She sees the figure in the Ronin suit, but we don't get a clear shot of the face, and I admit I spent a weird amount of time trying to make something out in that minute bit we see skin. But my point here is, I don't think that was Clint especially after Maya goes in to find her father still alive, bleeding out on the floor. That's sloppy. Clint wasn't sloppy. He was fast, but he was thorough as well. And as Willie dies, he does leave a bloody handprint on Maya's face, which is a callback to her comic hero look. And uh, their repair shop also is called Fat Man Auto Repair, which, again, Wilson Fisk. It's not an if, it's a when. <laughs> Uh, in the present day on the show, the Hawkeyes, meaning Kate and Clint, are still tied to the children's toys waiting for Maya. Uh, we get a funny little bit of a tracksuit arguing on the phone with his girlfriend because, as we get the backstory, he bought her Imagine Dragons tickets. You know, see the band, the group Imagine Dragons, right? Um, and so she's taking her sister to go see it with her. And he's mad because she doesn't even like Imagine Dragons. And there we can obviously, it's why she's mad, because she doesn't even like men. It's just funny shit. Um, then we get Kazi comes out of the office with Maya when she finally comes out. Clearly, the two of them know each other pretty well. She sees the hearing aid on Clint and starts signing to him, but he clarifies that he's just hard of hearing, not deaf. She's less than pleased when she sees then that he can't really speak with sign language in full sentences and ends up having to use Kazi as an interpreter. She tells him that Clint relies way too much on technology with his hearing aid. Clearly, Maya and her crew don't know that Hawkeye, aka Clint, was Ronin. They don't have that connection. Here we have Clint just trying to convince them that Ronin isn't Kate, um, and they still believe that Ronin, whoever Ronin is, is back. At one point, Maya even loses it on Kate, choking her out until Kazi pulls her off. Kate is a Kate Clint is able to free himself and it starts a chase scene through the building, lots of jumps and things, all kinds of parkour, yay. Clint gets his hearing aid kicked out of his head and Maya crushes it. She is an excellent fighter and I love to see it. He shoots Kate free with an arrow, plays in a ball pit, and then they end up stealing a car. And then you get a car chase, which is 100% a throwback to issue three of the Fraction AHA run. Cars were a big part of the series as a whole, um, fairly often at least. So uh, again, this is another thing that they ripped off from those two creators and have not given them a cent, a dime, a, a breath of credit. Um, so we get the car chase scene, right? Um, it's all kinds of fun gags with trick arrows, which are pretty cool. And the climax is Kate shooting an arrow up high, so that'll come down on their car. Uh, wouldn't do much damage in that case. But Clint shoots it with a Pym Particles arrow, so that it becomes enormous, creating a, honestly, a massive hole in a public bridge. So good, good job, guys. 
Um, and then somebody put together, I did find this, a list of the various trick arrows that they use on the show in this scene. They got putty arrow, plunger arrow, exploding arrow, bullet arrow, acid arrow, smoke bomb arrow, pim arrow, and of course the infamous USB arrow. The USB arrow is another direct pull from the Fraction AHA run, as most of those trick arrows are. Um, but in the Fraction AHA run, the USB arrow was not one that... It, it was... The, uh, we had the female version that she Kate shot at him in the show. In the comic, it was it's the male version that she... It's just a USB. It's literally an arrow that is a USB, so she inserts it. It's, yeah. <laughs> Literal USB arrow, not... I don't know, like, the one that Kate had. I don't, well, what would that even do? You plug it into something, or something gets plugged into it, then what? I don't even know. So then back at the safe house apartment, Clint's younger son ends up calling on his cell phone, but Clint can't hear him because his hearing aid was crushed, right? So Kate gets a notepad and on speakerphone translates to Clint as best as she can. And honestly, this scene, I think, is Renner's best acting in the entire MCU thus far. For real. His son wants him to be there tonight for their Christmas movie marathon. Um, but then, you know, hears the unsureness in his father's voice and tells him, you know, it's okay if you can't come home for Christmas, daddy, I understand. And Clint is completely crushed by this, of course, and he insists that he will, uh, and they say their goodbyes. It's a really moving scene, honestly. It was very well done. And then the tracksuits are moving out of their own hideout, and meanwhile, Kazi and Maya have to have a conversation in sign language alone. Uh, it's made clear that these guys don't know sign language. They've only been with Maya for a very short amount of time. But she and Kazi definitely have some kind of history of some sort knowing each other. Whatever it is that they're doing, they don't want Uncle to find out. So Uncle is Kingpin, remember? And it kind of gets me on this thing of, well, if they stole the Ronin suit from Kingpin, and that's why the tracksuits broke into the place that was his house, and that's why he would have it, right? You see where I'm going with this? Like, um, I, I still think what we're going to find out at some point in this is that Kingpin sent somebody in the Ronin suit after her father for stabbing him in, his, in the back, because you remember back in that flashback scene, um, when Maya was a was a child, he tells her it's better to be fast than big. Um, obviously talking about himself being fast and Fisk being big. So even there, you I, I would call that some very clear foreshadowing of the fallout of uh, Willie Lopez and Wilson Fisk's relationship, or at least business relationship. So. go back to Clint and Kate getting his hearing aid fixed and they get something to eat. She designs him a crudely drawn costume, which is basically his original classic cheese ball suit. And he declines, of course, part of his reason being that he does not believe he is a role model. Later, he tells her that the tracksuits have grown a lot recently in size and in notoriety, notoriety, uh, with there being some shadow figure at the top uh, doing all the important stuff, uh, somebody who was above Maya, someone who, quote, you don't want to mess with. That's not the first time we've heard a shadowy um, top-level figure being referred to as someone you don't want to mess with on this show. Remember Armand, when he was threatening Eleanor, is her name Eleanor? Kate's mom. Um, he said, I work, I have very powerful friends, friends you don't want to mess with. So there you go. I have a feeling those are the same person they're talking about here. 
Um, and Clint also is aware that Ronan hit the tracksuit supplier and then their management. So a little bit unclear there if that is Clint admitting to having done that as in admitting to us, the audience, basically, or if he's just aware that that's what happened and that's why they were confused. Because remember in the first episode or possibly the second episode, he kept saying, you've got the wrong guy. I'm not the guy you're looking for. So it's possible that he knows that somebody else was doing Ronin stuff dressed as Ronin and it wasn't him. So he and Kate decide that Jack is the most likely person to have killed Armand at this point. So they're going to go sneak into her mom's penthouse and go through their security company um, logs and information and anything on the tracksuits as well as Jack. They do get some info on Kazi, but there's a few interesting names listed that I wanted to note. One is S. Killian, a someone who shares a last name with one Aldrich Killian, the villain of Iron Man 3. Now, I did already talk about A., rumors that Madame Mask would be in the show, B, the fact that Eleanor Barton was Madame Mask's boss for a time, and C, Madame Mask was meant to be the main villain in the Iron Man 3 movie. So while a lot of plays, a lot of, um, a lot of reports and things are saying that this is just a coincidence, I'm gonna go ahead and say no, it is not a coincidence. We may be having some kind of Madame Mask in this for sure for real we'll see we'll have to wait and see another name that they had was m kemp it's noteworthy that michael kemp was a member of the albanian mob who matt murdoch had to question in the daredevil series while he was imprisoned on rikers island you also have t kalek kadlek kadlek uh kadlek is an inhuman norm known as the seeker from way back in the day of all of these, I would say most likely this one is just a fun reference as well as the Kemp. Killian may turn out to be Madame Mask. I would love that to be a thing. Uh, then we have back at the house, Clint is still investigating around the house. He hears a creaking floorboard and finds a sword at his throat with Jack holding it. I can't help but think that Jack is not only very entertained by this scenario, but knows Clint somehow. Obviously, as being Swordmaster in the comics, he did train Clint and Clint's brother Barney while they lived with his circus as children. Many articles have pointed out already that while Clint has been with S.H.I.E.L.D. for the last 20 plus years, we haven't heard what he did before that. So I definitely see this as an opportunity to explore that past that he has. Again, ripping off Fraction and even the Lemire run more and more, but that is where I kind of see this going, where if he does not have a past with this character, uh, Jack, who is Swordmaster, I would be very, very surprised. Finally, I would like to very briefly discuss the last arc of Young Justice, uh, the most recent arc that wraps up of Young Justice, which followed Cheshire, Lady Shiva, and Orphan. Orphan, you may know as uh, Cassandra Kane, uh, Lady Shiva being her mother. Um, and then we have Cheshire, who is the kind of somewhat villainous sister of the somewhat heroic Artemis. Um, <clears throat> and so it's, it's a nice very female forward story arc, uh, very complex in relationships. You get a lot of Orphan's backstory. You get a lot of the dynamic between her and her horrendous mother. You get a lot of Cheshire's guilt for basically abandoning her daughter with her sister. Um, a lot of stuff like that. It's very, very good arc. And one of my favorite things that they did in it was uh, they did an update to what their version of 
uh, a killing joke would be or was. Um, so instead of Barbara getting shot in the stomach by the Joker when she opens her front door, um, this is Batgirl out fighting with the rest of the Bat family while Joker has gotten Lady Shiva to send Orphan out on a mission. I believe that's what it was. Um, but it ends up with Orphan slashing Babs across the back with her sword, which effectively breaks her out of her mother's brainwashing. And that is, you know, when they first meet, when they first bond. Um, and so when Orphan gets taken back by Lady Shiva in this arc, um, it is very, very important for Oracle, who is the name Babs has taken at this point, to find her and make sure that she's safe because they have that very complex relationship of, you know, she's wounded because of her, but she, but that happened because she was trying to save her from the Joker. So it's like this whole, uh, complicated relationship, but in the end, the two of them do care deeply for each other. Um, and they do get her back from Lady Shiva safe and sound. And that just about does it for this Monday episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. As of right now, we can plan on the next episode being uh, the coming Monday, which is going to be the 13th for episode 44. Um, I, If you have any ideas for or suggestions for what you would like me to put up for my special edition podcasts uh, so I can start working on those, I would love to hear what you have to say or what you would like to hear. Thank you very much for listening to whatever portion of the podcast you were able to, like usual. It is going to be quite dark. It's going to be getting dark very, very early, uh, pretty much no matter where you are this time of year. So uh, don't get trapped outside after dark and be safe. Read comics, do some nerdy stuff indoors, um, and have a sweaty week. <laughs>